Welcome to the Rethink Freedom podcast with Freedom United and Human Trafficking Search. In part two of this three-part series exploring the intersections of human trafficking and disability, Brendan talks to Dr. Chris Carey, Associate Professor in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Portland State University. Brendan here. Welcome back to the Human Trafficking Search podcast. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Chris Carey, an associate professor in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Portland State University. He's an expert in law with an emphasis on human rights, environmental advocacy, and of course, human trafficking, with experience working as a district attorney in the U.S., as well as on research projects and community engagement programs abroad for the U.S. State Department and USAID. Professor Carey co-authored one of the earliest and most important studies on the intersection of human trafficking and disability, titled Trafficking People with Disabilities, a Legal Analysis. The study takes an in-depth look at how laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, and a web of state and local laws interact to address trafficking of people with disabilities. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, uh, Professor Carey. Really excited to have you on and share some of your expertise. Thank you. Great. And I think we'll just jump right into the questions. Um, the first one, just very general, is you've worked on a lot of different subject matter. What made you interested in this particular intersection of uh, human trafficking and disability, and how does it connect to your general work? Got it. Uh, thank you. Uh, so I've been doing trafficking work uh, for a while now, uh, over 20 years, actually. Um, and it started actually with field work. We ran a nonprofit that set up women and children in shelters in South Asia, actually, for the State Department. So it was the first time that I was exposed uh, to trafficking uh, on a wide scale. And that was both labor and sexual exploitation. Um, mostly of uh, Nepalese and Bangladeshis into uh, areas of India. And uh, what I noticed there is that um, uh, that obviously age uh, and gender were a big factor, but also some things like intellectual disabilities, um, developmental delays, uh, all the other kind of risk factors mixed into one. So there's a lot of intersectionality um, at that point. And uh, so when we were working there, that was one thing I noticed. And then, you know, I took a break, I started, I came back home, I was doing a bunch of research. And this would constantly pop up as um, a risk factor, intellectual disability, developmental delays. And we know from a lot of the early childhood research that um, unless, you know, there's nutrition and some other things that are involved in the first several years of life, that these things can manifest over time. So it was something that just kind of uh, came up over and over again. And because I was a, and then I, I read a couple of these, uh, you know, pretty well-known cases, the Hill County Farms case, which is a case out of Iowa. There's another case out of Louisiana. And I was just appalled. And my first thought was, wow, what laws protect this, you know, even before the trafficking statutes happen. And so that was really kind of how this emerged. I didn't set out to look at these two factors, but with much of my research um, and the studies over the years, this is one thing that has emerged. And because I was had a law background, I said, God, I'm wondering if we can kind of trace some history 
And then, you know, as all good scholars do, you're like, certainly someone more smart, smarter than I has looked at this before. And of course, no one had. So uh, we started and it, it was not an easy task. That's for sure. This paper was a very long time in the making. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As someone who went to school in Iowa, reading about the uh, Hill County case, I, I've been in that area, was also really striking to me. Right. Made me really interested in this intersection as well. Great. Well, and just to set the stage in your eyes as you were, you know, developing this body of work, what types of structural disadvantages and vulnerabilities did you see people with disabilities facing vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, human trafficking? So, um, you know, we can kind of, if, if you take a look at the landscape of who at, who has access to things like social service, attorneys, uh, government, who can navigate educational systems, who can navigate healthcare, you know, that is not the easiest thing to do in our country and a lot of, in, in a lot of countries. Um, and so you kind of stack that up and, you know, and we all navigate and advocate for our own health care if we have it, you know, even with insurance companies. So people with developmental delays, intellectual disabilities, um, sometimes that becomes more of a challenge, too, because you have to have, you know, you have to push and you have to kind of uh, understand landscapes around you and how to kind of navigate those landscapes. And so sometimes unless you have people helping you do that, that that becomes a really barrier. And uh Actually, you know, that that great challenge is what traffickers look for, the ability to isolate somebody easily, the ability to um, intimidate them either by fear or coercion, physical or not. In fact, there's one of the cases um, early on that they were just using uh, psychological threats. Um, and in fact, the Supreme Court ruled that psychological threat cannot be coercion. And then that required a legislative fix, which was done in the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. So that I think is a really good example of, you know, those structural balances uh, that traffickers will use to isolate, identify, and then exploit their victims. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that answer. And so to turn to the study itself, um, which is called Trafficking People with Disabilities, a legal analysis, we'll have that in the description of the podcast. Um, what were your sort of general goals at the outset of that research and how did you set out to achieve? So uh, I'm a qualitative, I'm, I'm a legal researcher and a qualitative researcher by training, um, an ethnographer, right? So what I am is a story collector. I don't, and I do some descriptive analysis and I have research studies that do that. But but with most qualitative researchers or ethnographers, I'm really interested in the stories. And I'm really interested in that kind of personal lived human experience. So the first goal was to just try to, and and the other thing about the law is that every court case is a story. It's a narrative waiting to unfold with plots and twists and villains and heroes and protagonists and antagonists. And so uh, I was really interested in the story. So really, the goal was to just take a look at the landscape, how these were being treated, how they were being dealt with in the media, how they were coming out in court, how they were being prosecuted, if they were being prosecuted, and then what laws. So it was really just to paint um, a picture or a landscape of kind of what was happening in the world of the intersection of human trafficking and uh, intellectual disabilities. Yeah, absolutely. And so just segueing smoothly from discussion of those laws, um, 
What should people know about how state and federal laws sort of impact or address this issue of uh, trafficking of people with disabilities? Well, um, so there are several laws that don't really intersect but are out there in the in the world uh, that affect or touch people uh, that are in a protected class or have disabilities. So I'll talk about those two first, and then I'll dive into the trafficking law. So the first one, which most folks have heard of, is the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act from 1991. Um, and what this allows is this, uh, I'm sorry, what this prohibits is discrimination against people that have a demonstrated disability. And there's, you know, a bunch of requirements in the federal law, and it's been amended several times. So I wouldn't suggest anybody go read it, but there are lots of treatises and law review articles on it, which might be easier. Uh, but what that does is because it prohibits discrimination, the other thing that it does is carves out a cause of action for folks to say, I've been discriminated against, um, I've been treated unfairly based, but for my disability. So what that law does is create a civil action. So it's not criminal nature, right? It's a civil action. And indeed, uh, since the majority, actually the majority of trafficking is labor trafficking, although that doesn't get most of the attention, sex trafficking does. Um, because it's labor trafficking, indeed, the vast majority of these cases, uh, well, even today, but even before, the, but up until about five years ago, were were prosecuted under the ADA in some civil form of relief. Mm -hmm. Disability is also a protected status under hate crimes legislation. And so the Department of Justice, there's civil rights violations also uh, that are civil in nature. There's also some other aspects that are criminal, but we're not going to talk about that at this point, um, that uh, are civil in nature that you can be uh, that people who violate this or violate the civil rights of someone that has had a disability can also uh, have charges brought against them um, civilly. So what it didn't do was create a specific, so, so those laws are fine, but again, they don't create a criminal, but we, we call it criminal route or criminal cause of action, which what the Trafficking Victim Protections Act does, that was first passed uh, by the Bush, second Bush administration and has been amended many times since then. But what it does is it allows if you are, uh, if you know, you qualify and if all the steps uh, for trafficking, you know, which is exploitation of a person by force, fraud, or coercion. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's a general overview. Um, it allowed those cases to move to move forward. So you have civil remedies, and then you also have criminal remedies. And again, most be, and la most labor trafficking cases are prosecuted under civil remedies, whether that's done by the government or private parties. Um, but the TVPA is a while it also does uh, uh, have some provisions for civil remedies um, and forfeiture, it is a criminal statute by nature. That makes sense. Yeah, I appreciate the, the detailed answer. I think that really gives a strong lay of the land. And also just going off of that, so one, one quote that really popped out to me while I was reading your study and that felt very illuminating was, uh, you wrote that the differences between state and federal anti-trafficking statutes have left gaps consisting of legislative, educational, and jurisdictional mismatches. I would just love to hear you expand on that and talk about some of the, the issues arising. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we have 50 states. Uh, I think every state at this point has a trafficking statute, although I may be wrong on that. Um, they are, while they basically say the same thing, there are differences. And some of those times are differences that make a difference in terms of prosecution, in terms of jurisdiction, uh, in terms of who can bring claims. Uh, the example that I brought before as to, and, and, and so there's legal distinctions. There's also cultural distinctions, right? So just because something says it is the law doesn't mean that it's used and prosecuted. And I think a good example is in a good gap is the one we've just talked about is that a lot of labor cases are prosecuted under the civil remedies, which um, many times are federal in nature, but can be statewide in nature. Um, and, you know, they just, you know, even though maybe their trafficking statute says that you can prosecute labor, the vast majority of these cases aren't come there. And if you look at the federal statutes, you can see the vast majority of cases are prosecuted are um, sex trafficking and not labor trafficking cases. So one is that's kind of a legislative gap, and those are different all over the place. You also have jurisdictional issues, right? Um, the TVPA is a federal statute, which means that federal law enforcement's prosecute this. You have Department of Justice, and, and sometimes you have, well, in areas that you have a lot of collaboration, you have like, uh, deputy district attorneys that are dual qualified that can do state court and then also follow that case if case up it go, gets adopted into federal court because as you probably know you know there are many 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 more district attorneys and state's attorneys and local police than there are federal prosecutors fbi agents that sort of stuff so that's a really good example of collaboration that kind of closes those gaps so that's the legislative gap and then a jurisdictional gap Educationally, you've also got disparities around the country. So you have, you know, a much more heavily focused kind of trafficking education and pipelines in larger cities than you do in rural areas. But what we know from trafficking is it happens all over the country in every county or every, you know, state, and it looks different from different places. So um, that educational piece also becomes really important that actually these cases could go federal and you do have an ability to choose civil remedies or criminal remedies. Many times it comes down to resource issues, right? Especially in smaller counties where things are strapped. These are very challenging investigations for the most part. Um, you generally have to have a lot of survivor uh, cooperation to work through these things. They have to be willing to testify. They have to be willing uh, to have patience. There are grand juries, there are trials, there are cross-examinations. So all of those parts also kind of become gaps when you have all of these different statutes around the country um, and then educating about those statutes. And then one of the final areas I would say that there's also a disproportionate impact on victims depending on where you are. So some states have a very robust support program and victim advocate program, and some states don't. And some federal jurisdictions take this more seriously than others. What we know from trafficking cases is that a couple of things. Um, the first is that the first contact is really important. So if you have somebody in there that doesn't have a victim-centered or trauma-informed approach, and they have the first contact with a survivor or a victim, and that doesn't go well, it's not a zero-sum game. It's really hard to go back and reinstall that trust, 
um, whether it's law enforcement, a victim's advocate, a social service provider. And so you see that cities that have the highest level of success in these areas have these very strong collaboration um, across the board. And so because those disparities exist, and we know that these cases take a lot of support for the survivors, both socially, educationally, sometimes they need housing. We know stable and secure housing is a really important part. Um, and because many times that folks that experience developmental delays or intellectual disabilities need more support, that that's why it's just it, it just increases that load even more to make sure it's the right agency, it's the right jurisdiction, and it's at the right level that these cases are being prosecuted. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that comprehensive explanation. Um, so we've talked a lot about how, you know, government entities, policymakers, people in the legal system can do more and where gaps exist with regard to this topic. What should people with disabilities and their advocates do to try and protect themselves from these forms of trafficking, like any key best practices? Yeah, that that is that is a, a great question. And so, um, yeah. And because many times um, in the article talks about several of these cases, uh, you know, you are reliant upon a caretaker, not always. And of course, you know, people with intellectual disabilities run the gamut, just like people without intellectual disabilities, right? Some are higher functioning, some are less functioning, some need more support in contacts, some are able to operate independently, just like uh, folks without that. So um, a couple of kind of really important steps. One is that um, the support network uh, should be strong, it should have integrity, and it, it should have what I call redundancy, which means there's just not one person that's caring for this person. You know, there needs to be checks and balances. Agencies either need to be involved at the state level or the nonprofit level. There's some outstanding resources for folks. Um, healthy environments, meaning people can live a fulfilling life, which means they're usually outside, have outside employment. There is social activities. Um exercise, good food, all of those things. And that comes with really good streaming processes. That comes with uh, engagement from, you know, the folks that are supposed to be watching out. And frankly, you know, those are child welfare agencies. Um, those are nonprofits that work in this area and there's funding for these things, right? So that exists as well. You also have to make sure that if your state or county uses things like a um, home model, like a, a a model that a foster care home or group home that there's monitors in place that is also a safe and healthy environment. There's lots of training to look out for these places and education. You know, I mean, uh, it, people with intellectual disabilities, you know, many times can sense when something is wrong. So there needs to be that ability to communicate out. What we've seen a lot in some of these cases is this kind of, uh, I think we call it captivity for profit in the article. And what that is really just a fancy word for is that people who are just, you know, literally, for lack of a better word, imprisoning these folks and taking their social security payments, right, for many times, years and years and years on end. And as you saw in one of those cases, I think we talked about earlier, the Hill County Farms case, um, where you know 
literally that was from 19, I think it was 1979 to 2009. That's 30 years that there was a civil judgment in that case for 240 million, you know, for those payments that had been withheld. In that case, it was wages that were withheld, but it can work the same thing with social security payments. Yeah, absolutely. That that makes a lot of sense. So, and I think this will probably be my last question. Um, so we've talked a lot about sort of these, I would say, larger systemic issues that are, you know, having a negative downstream impact on trafficking patterns with people with disabilities. And I think one thing that you see a lot in the literature is just you need these big systemic fixes, um, and they're so little known. In sort of the short and the long term, what are like the most important key, ideally immediately achievable steps that stakeholders in the nonprofit sector or in the government or even in the private sector should be looking at to try and begin addressing this issue more substantively? So uh, that's a that's a great question. I think a really good question to end on. So again, as you pointed out, there are long term solutions. We've talked about some of those um, in the short term. You know, there are lots of trafficking screening tools that are out there, um, and those can all be adapted uh, either from law enforcement to social security uh, to, to social service agencies, I meant, um, or nonprofits. So they can look at like, and you can download them off the internet, right? This is not, uh, you have to recreate anything. That's the first thing. The second thing is to recognize that we are in an age of increasingly what I would call intersectionality, and that is occurring in many parts of our society, but it is also occurring in trafficking prosecutions and our understanding of disability and our understanding of exploitation. I'm going to give you a really specific example. So, um, you know, many times when people age, right? They get older and older. Uh, you start to lose some bodily functions. Sometimes you lose some mental capacities. Um, you can have early onset Alzheimer's. You can have dementia. The ADA classifies those as intellectual disabilities. So it doesn't matter where it comes from, but you hold it so you have those protections. The same thing with elder care and elder abuse, which many of these are pocketed, but we actually don't really focus on that. So there, it's extremely rare. I think I know of one case maybe that was also an elder abuse case that also was prosecuted as a trafficking case. One, and you know there are many more because many people with intellectual disabilities are older. And so like recognizing that the situation getting sucked into the category that says, okay, this is an elder abuse case. I'm an elder abuse lawyer, which means I civilly prosecute and go after people that are exploiting, you know, people that are older. That might be a trafficking case too, but because it's not in our realm of looking at her, because we're so focused on that category, we don't recognize that. And so I would say immediately for service providers, obviously screening tools, and then recognizing the intersectionality of these crimes um, and avenues of exploitation is an immediate thing. Um, for the general folks, obviously, you know, the same signs that we look for if it looks like someone is being mistreated, if they are malnourished, um, you know, these are all signs to try to get involved or get a social service agency involved, start asking some questions. And 
it's more challenging with folks with developmental delays or intellectual disabilities um, because many times there's trouble advocating for themselves. Not always, but many times. Absolutely. Well, yeah, thank you so much for that answer. That piece about the intersection of elder abuse and human trafficking is something that I actually hadn't thought about a lot until reading your work. Yeah. Someone who's interested in a career in disability and elder law was a very illuminating point for me. So I want to thank you for that in particular. Um, and yeah, thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast and sharing your thoughts. I think people are really going to benefit from your insights. Great. Well, Brent, thank you so much. And let me know when it's out. We're so grateful to our hosts and guests for this insightful discussion on human trafficking and disability. Visit freedomunited.org to take action against modern slavery today. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.